Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Straight Talk Radio, where we discuss business, politics, and culture. This is Donya Keating. I'm your host. I'm coming to you live from the Seattle area. It's about 3 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, and it is Friday, May 1st. If you are listening live and you want to join in the discussion, you can call in at 563-999-3516, and uh, we'll see how it goes from there. This is our first podcast. Um, I don't think we've done one since August 2019, and um, we kept getting pinged on our Facebook page and via Messenger and email about doing a show, so we're just going to see what we can come up with today. I'm going to jump over and see who else is here. Hello. Hi there. This is Charles. Hi, Charles, my favorite sidekick. Do you want to say anything about yourself today before we get started? My name is Charles, and I reside in Washington State. How's that for a start? Sounds good. Okay, that's enough. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, this is the name of this is you know our take on the issues, April 2020, because we've been kind of out there, um, not really. We, we follow things, but we just haven't been doing shows. So, uh, I would say the most obvious topic, uh, one of the most obvious topics that we will cover today, is the Corona pandemic, coronavirus. Um, or COVID-19, we'll probably interchange with those terms. And um, obviously, I mean, we're not looking to be the comprehensive uh, resource today on on best practices and whatever. I think we just hope most of you are keeping track of what's going on by checking in with reliable resources um, like World Health Organization or WHO or WHO, depending on how you describe them. And then there's the uh, CDC which is Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And, of course, there are people out there that suspect that because of where they're affiliated and with whom, but that's neither here nor there for us. Um, There's also, for me, American Society for Microbiology, or ASM. Uh, There are scientific journals that are out there you can look at uh, if you trust them. And there's universities and university hospitals and research facilities and uh, I guess some people will look at, you know, the Washington Post or, you know, New York Times or Fox News or, you know, CNN or whatever it is, depending upon uh, what they feel comfortable with. But I think the the prevailing idea here is that, um, you know, if you're going to do due diligence, check as many sources as possible um, to make sure that your information is accurate, whether that's for a debating point or whether it's just in conducting um, how to go out living your life so that you are safe and so that others around you are safe. So um, I'm going to start with uh, some stats just to get us started about where we are in the United States. I'm not really going to um, cover a lot of worldwide uh, trends and numbers today. I just, you know, couldn't, you know, we couldn't get there with all the other things going on. But anyway, um, as of today, and this is, I believe, from the CDC's website, there are a total of 1,062,446 cases in the United States, 
and 30,787 of those are new cases compared to yesterday's data. I'm pretty sure those numbers have already changed since we got them this morning. Um, the total number of deaths is 62,406, and about 2,300 of those are new deaths compared to yesterday's data. Um, I remember looking at the reported cases by state, and so if you go to the CDC site, you'll see that um, it's color-coded, of course. And so we just kind of went and looked at the ones that had more than 25,000 uh, reported cases in their state. And so some of the obvious ones, um, California, Texas, uh, Florida, Illinois, uh, Michigan, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, I think Louisiana and Georgia, obviously, and then Connecticut. Of course, I don't want to forget at the top of that list is, you know, New York, which they're at probably at 300,000 by now, and then New Jersey has about 118,000. So um, Washington State, where we are, was basically ground zero in the United States in that um, we had the first individual who was confirmed as positive by the CDC in, in mid-January. I think it was like January 20th. So. Um, again, uh, you know, certainly advised to keep track of valid sources. Um, we're not going to go into all the symptoms and how to exercise due diligence or care, but, you know, certainly uh, this is something that we want to uh, kind of move out of our population sooner than later. It's not going to totally go away for good, but um, it's, it's certainly something to consider in terms of reducing the curve or flattening the curve and um, certainly making sure that we're not taxing our healthcare system unnecessarily. So, um, Charles, do you want to offer some comments before I go into some of the subsets of what this uh, coronavirus has led to in our society today? Well, um, I guess the only thing I would like to say is it's a much more significant disease than I think was originally per perceived. Um, and then it was perceived to be, oh, my gosh, this is going to destroy everything. I think the truth is a little bit somewhere in the middle, but closer to it's a pretty severe disease. When I look at the numbers of how many people die versus how many recover, there's a lot of death. This is a higher morbidity and mortality rate than obviously the flu as people know. So I guess my background is on this then is like we've taken all these extreme precautions because of COVID-19, and I think they were warranted because if we hadn't done them, I wonder how many deaths we would have had in general. It would probably been much, 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 much greater. So I'm glad that's that's my only background here. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know where you are, but if you were kind of breaking up a little bit there um, at some point, so try to get into a stable uh, signal designation or, or location so that we are not, you know, kind of flip, flitting on and off on air. Anyway, um, so for me, um, I think what I noticed, first of all, which is usual, is that um, this has become political for a lot of people. And where they land, you know, these are observations, because I don't like to spend a lot of time on social media for a variety of reasons, but when I do and when I can stomach it enough to pay attention, I I tend to notice some 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 trend lines, and that is that where people land tends to reflect where they are ideologically. For instance, if people are minimizing what's occurring, 
uh, equating it to the flu, focusing on the economy and how we need to get back to work or reopen business right away, or, hey, we're going to die anyway, so we can't hide away and everybody's cowering in fear and, you know, whatever. Those people, those comments, especially people that I know that are affiliated with, say, for instance, my Facebook, those people tend to lean right. Um, if people are discussing how we should be sheltering in place to flatten curve or, you know, they're talking about consideration for our vulnerable populations or our healthcare system and our first responders in medicine and law enforcement and elsewhere, um, or if they're talking about how um, we have decimated the environment and look at how clean it is and, and, and look at the impact of human, you know, destruction and blah, 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 those people obviously tend to lean left. So as I've said, it's not an exact science. Um, there are some people that are independent or centrist or, you know, they just have a hybrid of, of opinion regarding, you know, caring for people and caring for lives. But I'm just saying that it's not an exact science. Don't send me nasty chat messages or whatever on Facebook. It's just something, like I said, I've observed with reasonable consistency when um, I've been reading through some of the exchanges. And something else that I've also observed is if – COVID-19 illness or death has been a close-up and personal experience in that person's life, or if they have some at-risk loved ones, they tend to be a little bit more patient or sympathetic or understanding or whatever that term is with the idea of sheltering in place or taking certain precautions to make sure that it's not just about whether or not you are vulnerable and whether you're young, which is false information, by the way, um, whether you're false, you know, you're, you're, whether you're young and don't have underlying conditions and so forth and therefore not vulnerable. Um, other people that have these direct experiences or that are aware of the fact that young people have been affected by it or they have people that they can in terms in, in turn, in fact, they tend to be a little bit more sympathetic towards, you know, taking, um, uh, you know, certain measures versus, you know, pushing and and just talking about, you know, or trying to equate, which I think and I've seen is is just horrendous to me, um, the impacts of economic um, instability. So, do you have any thoughts before um, I go into that or not go into that? Um, no, I, I think that's it's. it's I, I just think. Wherever people lie, they got to remember that whether or not I get severely sick or not, if I pass it on to somebody else who then passes it on to somebody else who dies, that's called an externality. And I think the case here is that even though I may not get terribly sick, if I can, by my getting sick, kill somebody else or pass it on to somebody else who passes it on to somebody else and kills them, that's kind of a problem. I think that's the real crux of it. So it's kind of like, well, we have to do what we have to do to beat this disease, and, you know, I think the economic arguments are going to be moot if we're killing a lot of people. So there you go. Well, I think the counter-argument to that, we can get into detail later, is that, you know, while well, you're killing people that don't have money or that's, that are not able to go to work because they're stressed out and because they are, you know, increasing levels of depression, anxiety, suicide. Um, so that that's a kind of a counter-argument, and, and that's true. Yeah. Um, but I also think that, you know, as someone who knows of people who have been sick and died from this, and as a person, I'm actually high risk. Um, you know, my, my family members are high risk. You know, my sisters are both high risk. My parents are high risk. It's just a different... It's a, it's a different sense of of how you go about in the world when you recognize that you can cause harm to other people, you know, without even knowing it because you don't have any symptoms. And so you have a certain level of, of heightened responsibility, I think. But I want to talk about testing for a little bit. Um, 
So as of the evening of April 30th, the total number of public health laboratories that have completed verification and are offering testing in the United States is 97. And so this includes one or more of those uh, public health laboratories in 50 states, plus um, Washington, D.C., and Guam, Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. So, again, that's according to the CDC's website. And the biggest complaints that we've seen um, when we were doing due diligence to do this show and then in just our own exposure is that there isn't enough testing um, being done to determine who actually has the virus, uh, especially since a person can have it and be asymptomatic, uh, or uh, that the test to determine the presence of antibodies isn't rolling out fast enough or significantly enough so that we can better learn who's already had COVID-19. And then there's an argument being made that the latter would help us discern the degree of herd immunity, which that's a whole other topic, but, you know, that there's not enough information or data out there yet to validate the the mere possibility of reinfection. I mean, can people who've had it be reinfected? You know, are they really actually immune? Those are things that have yet to be determined, and so they really shouldn't be relied upon. I think it's really more about trying to figure out how many of us were actually infected. And I think the overall point being a low amount of testing doesn't provide a real sense of actual risk so that the tested positive numbers that are actually thrown out there become functionally meaningless. And so when people say, well, we haven't had anyone that tested positive or our numbers were low today, and it gives them kind of a false sense of security regarding the situation that we're in, and then that actually becomes an impetus for putting pressure on you know, uh, uh, politicians or whomever else to, to move us forward and say, hey, we're done with this, so let's move forward. So I'm just going to stop right there and get some feedback from you regarding testing. Please do more. That's my feedback. <laughs> and bring it on <laughs> because we need it. You know, it's just, I think it's it's taken way longer than I would have expected, and I think it's exposed weaknesses in the United States uh, delivery system for health care. I, I think that's the biggest shocker takeaway is that, you know, other places like South Korea – uh, we're able to ramp up much more effectively and much more quickly than us uh, for a variety of reasons. But I think ultimately we just weren't as prepared as we should have been, and that's bad on us. So, But here we are, and we're just waiting for things to get done now. So I don't want to complain too much because that just that doesn't do anything for us. We just have to keep moving forward. What do you think about the comments that the fact that we um, – haven't really gotten as much testing into our environment and that people who have had it have kind of gone through it and survived it, that this is proof that it's really not as dangerous as originally believed and that it's kind of being blown up by the media and um, politicians for other reasons. Well, okay, so even if a certain amount of exposure has happened in the public population and let's say some 5 or 10% of the population had it, maybe. That's a big maybe. And those are based upon studies of, you know, 2,000 random samples and extrapolating that to a population in a whole given region. So I don't trust, you know, those numbers I wouldn't trust yet. Um, Obviously, when we do way, way, way more testing, we'll have a better idea how many people have had it. That's one thing. Second thing is, we don't know if you've had it, you can't get it again, which is a real huge issue. It's not like, oh, I got the flu, so no, I'm inoculated against that strain of the flu. No, if this thing can come back, um, because it's not a combination of antibodies, but you have to have antibodies and a certain amount of T cells uh, in, to be able to effectively fight off the virus. 
it's a little different than the average flu in that because this might be a little, a little more virulent, when it gets into something like a nursing home, it can kill everybody in there. Okay, so that's a little different than the flu because uh, flus have circulated in nursing homes before and not killed everybody. So this is, this is definitely different. So I think when we do more testing, we'll find that it's been passed around, but I, I really don't think we know the whole story yet. And it might be, it might be some weeks, it might be some months before we know better. And, and frankly, our, our lack of testing, whether it's antibodies or molecular testing, that will actually detect whether the disease is present or just test whether you've had it in the past, you know, a combination of them, how, how accurate they are, how many false positives or negatives you get, all that other stuff. We're going to throw that all into the blender and try to figure something out so that we know maybe with some better idea um, when it's safe to start opening up. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that as we start gradually opening up, that people maintain safe practices like keeping distance, especially washing hands and not touching their face and stuff like that, and maybe we slow down the transmission of viruses in general. So that's the only thing I can kind of hope for out of all this is that um, maybe in the future it will be less likely we'll be passing around these viruses. But right now, I don't think we have enough information to make good uh, judgments. What do you think about the sentiment that, um, you know, that is more of a, a, and I'm not going to necessarily categorize it as a conspiracy because I don't really care. I mean, the, the bottom line is that people have their own beliefs about it. What do you think about people that believe that this is something um, where the government is doing this to other people to try to cause them harm and, um, you know, it's kind of a land grab or, you know, it's a violation of the U.S. Constitution? I mean, obviously it isn't because, you know, they're, they have right to make laws, and states have the right to make laws independently of the federal government, and they have the right to protect their populations from pandemics and, yeah. and issues of this nature by trying to implement what they believe are reasonable um, uh, procedures. And I think in some ways, I mean, and we didn't really go into details about this, but um, it's like we have the situation where we were asked for a relatively, presumably, short period of time to uh, undertake certain precautions. And there was a segment of the population which chose not to do so. I mean, they went to beaches, they hung out. Um, you know, some people had, you know, congregations where they said, you know, they didn't believe it was a serious, and now the people that were in those congregations, they got infected, some of them died, even some of the, the, the ministers that were yeah. in charge have died. And every single person that has had that sort of position that ended up sick or ended up dying, they or their loved ones would come back to the media and the public and say, oh, my God, I had no idea I underestimated this. You know, people, please be careful. And so, you know, the, the, the response to that would be, you know, how many people actually had to get sick and how many people actually had to die before certain segments of this population took it seriously enough to hunker down for the short amount of time that we originally requested to do so, number one. And number two, since we didn't do that um, and now it's extending, well, now it's starting to impact people economically. And so now, because you may not have been impacted by death or illness um, with COVID-19 in your personal space. I mean, we do know some people that have been sick or that have died, but if you hadn't and now the economy is impacting you, well, now you care. 
Okay, and so that's just kind of human nature that people don't care about things unless it impacts them personally. But if you look at the bigger picture of what was what we were trying to accomplish, uh, we were trying to do a couple of things, as we've said earlier. We were trying to flatten the curve, and we were trying to keep our medical systems our healthcare system from being overtaxed, which they are currently dealing with, obviously. You have people that are being buried in the park. There are people that can't have funerals. There are people that are having memorial services through Zoom. That is not something that anyone wanted. So um, I think about that situation when when I see a lot of the protests and a lot of the um, you know, the anger. I mean, it's like, you know, there's this whole idea out there where people are so angry and they make assumptions about one another uh, and they attack one another and they really don't know what everybody's going through. And one of the examples is I saw on a, um, a, um, a, a Facebook thread the other day where people were assuming that if you are in trying to shelter in place, then you must be someone who, you know, got a stimulus check. You must be someone who is financially... And it's, no, you're not. You know, no, these are not people that it's it's a false assumption that's used to justify attacking other people. There are a lot of people out there that we know who do not have, you know, the jobs. They do not have businesses. They do not have income. I agree that. They are they are scared. They are we are trying to help them to pivot. They're trying to find ways to make money. I mean, they're scrambling. They're hustling. These are not you know. Well, a I don't divide. I don't blame them. They're this is they're not hurting. the haves and the have-nots here. This is not Trump supporters yeah. versus non-Trump supporters or Trump haters. It's nothing to do with that. These are people who are trying to find a way to keep ER doctors from killing themselves, and literally because of what they are dealing with in the medical system that they feel they have no control. No matter how many hours they put in, no matter how many um, days they're putting in trying to take care of these sick and nine people, they're not making any headway. And they are, you know, just very, very upset about that. So um, yeah. I guess so I, I want to segue into that, the economy versus health, because that keeps coming up in a lot of discussions that I that I see. And I want to kind of go back to more than 30 million Americans have filed for unemployment benefits over the past six weeks. Right. Congress approved more than $2.5 trillion in coronavirus relief. The system has been able to keep up with unemployment claims. The Paycheck Protection Program has had technical problems and backlash over big businesses accepting these loans. And I've seen, like I said, this false dichotomy in social media discussions where it, it's absolutely true that not working or having money will cause extreme stress, and those that are predisposed to anxiety or depression or suicidal tendencies will have those exacerbated, and death may even result from that. Um, So you absolutely have to be mindful of that. Uh, And there are also, like I said, those who are on the front lines and they're dealing with an unimaginable uh, level of conditions and experiences. And, again, you know, that ER doctor in, in, in New York City who committed suicide is just the tip of the iceberg. But... I think the thing that I'm getting at is this isn't just about how many people are infected in our part of the world or our towns, and since those numbers aren't coming in every day, it's time to return to business. Um, Being able to hunker down long enough to flatten the curve and reduce the strain on our medical system were things that we were initially trusted to do. Well, yeah. Yeah. And I saw your question and, and many people didn't. So here we are. This is the consequence of not, 
you know, adhering to some basic requests. They gave us the trust. You know, we're a free society. We're we're high, we're, we're individualist here in, in the United States, and so we didn't, and so we are. But I saw your question well, some, on. Gonna, uh, they're going to protest. You know, this isn't just a medical problem. It's an economic problem too. So there's all sorts of people hurting. Some people are hurting because they had they died. Their, their families are suffering because somebody died or they got somebody got sick. But there's also people that are hurting because the economy has closed, closed down businesses and they're out of jobs. I'm not discounting either type of pain. Is we're looking at all these different situations happening at the same time. And the fact that people are that's the American right? I mean, people will do that. They, they have a right to have speech as long as they don't put others at risk uh, in what they're doing. Uh, as long as they cause other people to get something, uh, they have a right to speak up and say things, you know, like an um, Because it is that if people work and they have no money coming in and they can't pay their rent and they're getting put out on the street, you know, you know, and taken advantage of and all sorts of things, that's impact too. And I think that feeds to the conspiracy You're theory breaking up. and all that other You're breaking shit. up a lot, okay. Charles. You're breaking up a lot. Um, uh, yeah, maybe I'm going to switch phones or something because maybe this one's just not working very well. So I'll uh, turn it back well, over to you and switch now, but phone. That's fine now, okay. what you're doing right now. But if you're moving or anything, no, you kind of have to put your spot. Um, and anyway, I think, you know, back to your question about you know, politicians not there too quickly. I saw that on Facebook. I didn't get involved with it. But the obvious replies, yes. Um, uh, many of them have said as much in some of my meetings. Uh, and I think the thing is that it's obviously it, it, it has to be gradual. I mean, obviously they have to to return us to some semblance of normalcy, but it has to be based on science and quantifiable data and not panic from either side. I mean, there are people that are panicking about the, the actual spread of the infection. There are people obviously panicking about their financial situation and losing their homes and not having income. And, and, and you cannot make decisions based upon panic. Um, you have to be able to address the almost certain resurgence of infection that we're going to face. Um, and one person in one of our meetings made a comment that we're acting like people who've been given an antibiotic for you know X amount of days, and instead of going through the entire protocol or the cycle you know of meds, we start feeling better, and so we decide we should stop taking them. And that was kind of a good analogy because we're not finished. And I, I think. The other thing that I – there's another colleague of mine who's on the Hill, and he wrote this – I mean, I don't agree with everything he wrote, but he wrote this really scorching email um, about Americans and Western society, but you know, he was addressing Americans, and he was saying how we've gotten so soft – and, and that the reason why we've gotten soft is because we're we're slaves to consumerism, and we go out there and we buy things. You know, we're more concerned with you know buying. You know, one of the examples. You know, what I got my kids for Christmas or myself for Christmas, and you know, this becomes this big thing, and we're trying to impress each other, and we're taking all these expensive trips and buying these expensive vehicles, and we're doing all these luxuries, and we're spending all of our money without saving. And so, you know, he's saying, you know, we wouldn't even know how to survive or start a fire. He's kind of going back to that whole Boy Scout thing and saying that, you know, people have become so pampered uh, and they've become so privileged and that they're complaining about not being able to get pedicures or, you know, not having someone to cut or color their hair. They're so helpless and, you know, how they're not, they don't have money to pay for expensive cars and boats and, you know, all throughout the shelter in place, you know, people have been complaining about 
about having it to shelter in place. And he was saying that it makes no sense for some of us to not to be able to survive for one month. And, you know, I thought back on when the shelter in place went in for our state, and it was March 23rd. And so, yeah, you're right. We're just a little bit over a month. And it's interesting as a as a nation and as a Western society to see that all it took was one month to put us into a state of chaos. And his comments were like, well, what would we do if we had a deliberate bioattack? You know, and some people can argue about whether or not this was, but he was saying, what if we actually had, you know, biowarfare or if we had a nuclear attack or if we had a massive earthquake or a natural disaster, you know, the situation won't return to normal within weeks or a month. And he was saying that we need to get to a place in our society where we are able to survive and make sure we're prepared, um, whether it's our economy or our government, beyond one month. And so, you know, I don't think his points are invalid. Uh, His questions and thoughts aren't invalid. And the conversation that he sparked is still going, which is interesting to say the least. But what do you think about some of those thoughts? Well, I mean, with with the nation, with as many people as we have, there's going to be plenty of people at all sides all sides of the spectrum. So there's always going to be somebody complaining about not getting their hair done. But the reality is for the average person, there's a lot of people that are, that's not a big deal for them. So, I mean, the fact that you can find somebody online complaining about it doesn't mean anything. That's not the average person. I think a lot of people are just trying to deal with the situation at hand. They're trying to be reasonable, but this is exceptional for them. And I think the other side of that equation is the person who's complaining uh, about other people complaining probably has uh, more resources at his disposal uh, to be able to, quote-unquote, shelter in place for months without it being a big deal. Um, our society is structured where there's a lot of people that really don't have that financial luxury, and it's not just because they're doing their hair or getting Starbucks every day. It's because they work in jobs that don't really that, make that much money, uh, that they don't have good health care or they don't have health care plans at all. I mean, there's a ton of things out there that has exposed the weaknesses of our uh, economy. Um, we're very uh, much a have-have-not kind of situation uh, and the whole spectrum of it, and I think it's, it's exposed those weaknesses. So, yeah, I think we should be better prepared, but then, you know, there's only so much preparedness you can be. Um, I bet you we'll be better prepared for this pandemic when it comes down eventually after having dealt with this, but that's not just the only point here. The only point here is this is exposing uh, the fact that our system being very inequitable, especially our healthcare system, uh, makes it very difficult for us to properly respond to this situation. And uh, there'll be a lot of, uh, I'm gonna be interested to see how we react to this going forward the rest of this year, next year, how it impacts the elections, things like that. Well, that's another topic I wanna get on to um, with our 2020 elections, but let's talk first. You know, I think that you scratched on something very obvious and that and, and and this is kind of a you know sometimes people like to play devil's advocate and 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 play with people's lives with rhetoric and you know talk about the fact that you know people are not saving and that they're living from hand to mouth and they're not thinking about their futures and so the fact that they weren't able to survive for one month without having any savings or whatever is their fault quote unquote but I think as you kind of brought up very um, 
um, validly is that there are people that are on the fringe. I mean, they are living hand to mouth by, you know, whether it's because, and then there's comments coming through like, well, they should have gotten an education and blah, 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 and whatever. I mean, I think the real point here is that there are people through design or other circumstances that we are unaware of. They are living in, a, in a, an environment where if they don't work, they don't get paid. And, and if they don't get paid, they don't eat. And those people are terrified about the, the uh, impact of what we're dealing with on their lives. And so if the, 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 the comment I'm seeing here is this coming in is if, in fact, the government's going to come in and say, you must shelter in place, you must shut your business down, if you are not an essential worker, you must stay home, then it is incumbent upon them to be prepared to offset that. And Instead, you know, they have these things where they're not able to process unemployment fast enough. Some of that money is not going to be sufficient for some people. Um, there are stimulus checks that go to some people that are just completely not sufficient for anything. Some of us don't even get them. And then, you know, you talk about the CARES Act or efforts to help small businesses and citizens, and then the money ends up going to bailing out big businesses, um, you know, airlines, banks, whatever, they get millions and millions of dollars. And then all of these small businesses that are doing the right thing and sheltering in, in place as they've been asked to are getting nothing. Um, and then there's the, the other argument of, you know, wealthy universities that have billions of dollars in endowments. And granted, they are losing money right now because they've had to refund money to students and all types of things that they're losing as a result of not being able to function. But you know, they have billions of dollars in endowments, and yet they were given millions, again, by the government, and some of them have been shamed into returning those monies um, or not accepting them. And there are students that are um, suffering financially who could have actually benefited from that. So on the flip side, I guess we could have a discussion about the fact that, you know, if you want to ask your people, your citizens, to shelter in place, then you have to make sure that you have the infrastructure in place to take care of them sooner than later. Well, that's pretty obvious, and I think, uh, again, we've exposed the fact that we've uh, we've divested or underinvested in certain services, especially things like unemployment uh, processing, um, to the point where I think there was like the system in Kansas for the unemployment was built 40 years ago, and and they had one guy maintaining it, the COBOL system. You know, of course, I mean it doesn't cost much to have one programmer maintain an entire system, but of course when the system blew up, they had to find new people to go out there and take care of things. Now, again, I think we're exposing the fact that th there's all sorts of people who have different means to be able to respond to this pandemic. Uh, if you're a person of means and resources, uh, which includes the big corporations, um, they're more they're better prepared uh, to respond to the pandemic, but they're also more prepared to be able to tap the public funds that come down the pipe. Um, I think the big thing in 2008 was, you know, the banks got bailed out and people got screwed. And then the banks took the money and they continued to pay stockholder dividends and, and do stock share buybacks. And I think people are much, much, much less willing to sit by and watch that kind of behavior happen this time around. So every time something like this happens, we start fine-tuning the way we respond. And I think the fact that this is happening in an election year is going to be huge because there's going to be a lot of discussions about how this pandemic response was handled, how, how, uh, how were small businesses and how were individuals treated or not treated well and how well we responded to this pandemic is going to be under a microscope, as it should be.
Are there any winners in that? I don't know. I don't know yet. I mean, quite frankly, I think uh, no. I, I don't think anybody's winning. <laughs> exactly. I, think, I mean, so it, it's 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 an, it's the nature of an election year. You know, people that are siding with Trump are going to side with him no matter what. Um, some of them are out there and they're able to be objectively critical about the state of government, irrespective of who's in office and and which party they are. But not many people, from what I'm seeing, are able to think outside of their confirmation bias. Um, I think the other thing that I found interesting about some of the conversations that were out there was the innovation piece is what they call it. And, you know, you and I have talked about this constantly. It's like what that looks like is with people who are pivoting, you know, they are trying to reinvent themselves. They're survivors. They're hustlers. If they're a business, they've shifted to like curbside delivery pickup. Um, and then, as I mentioned to you, you know, some are cleaning out their spaces top to bottom and they're selling what they don't need. Um, others see um, a need and they try to fill it like some people are starting to sell and make and sell masks. Or, you know, they're offering shopping or grocery delivery or pickup uh, services for immunocompromised people or seniors. Um, and these people aren't just, you know, kind of sitting around on the Internet for hours a day, you know, socially cannibalizing one another or blaming government or other people or being partisan or even waiting for, you know, for the government to rescue them, even though, you know, I think that the government has a responsibility to, to get funds to, to those people. So... I guess what I was saying to you before and and what I bring up again is, you know, how do certain members of our society who are are disposed towards this thinking, how do we help and feed less fear and how do we encourage, I guess, what would be a growth mindset and promote, you know, what I said was ingenuity? How do you promote that? How do you get people to start thinking about um, ways that they can pivot and still try to survive instead of, you know, kind of sitting around and waiting for the government to solve this because I don't, I don't think they can. I think that they are, they're always going to be scrambling, and I think that it's, you know, it's never going to be enough. And they're so busy politicking uh, at this point in time that you know everything they're doing is just taking so long. So well, that's kind of their way. Um, I think people, uh, obviously, it's it's really upon the individuals and companies and things like that to think innovatively. Um, It'd be nice if the government thought more innovatively, but that's not generally their strong suit. So the reality is individuals who think innovatively, I think we need to pay attention to those stories. There's lots of people out there that are taking any great uh, catastrophe is also followed by people who start picking up the pieces and trying to figure out how to respond to this thing. And this is no different. Uh, Making PPE with 3D printers is just one little example of it. Uh, You can think of leaders who are then taking all their profits from this quarter and playing it, play, and applying it back into trying to find ways to protect their workers more, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I think this is going to be, we will react. Uh, I think we showed that we were unprepared, but I think we're going to get better as a result of it. And I hope, I hope that the focus of the political uh, discussions that will inevitably happen will be focused on not just pinning the blame on who didn't do what right, which, of course, will happen, but also what are your solutions? And let's have a discussion of what solutions are going to work, and let's revisit things that we have looked at for a long time or haven't looked at for a long time and see if we can do things better. Um, And I think this is going to happen top to bottom. There's going to be a lot of reevaluation of many, many, many things. And... uh, some people don't want to open up the can of worms and look at everything, uh, but I think it's uh, when something like this happens, a disaster blows into town and bl- blows into our world, 
we have to be willing to reevaluate past decisions and see whether they still fit. And right. that I think is the thing that will happen I hopefully at every level, not at you know, every household, every company, every state, every nation, um, you know, at many, many, many levels, I think we all have to reevaluate what are we doing, how are we doing it, can we do it better? And uh, there's going to be winners and losers out of this, so I, it's going to be messy for a long time. Okay, I, I think that's true. Uh, I just hope that, uh, like, unemployment gets straightened out. I hope that we learn how to open up gradually and keep people safe. I hope that we find ways to get business back on its feet. Uh, there's some talk about it being the 90% economy, like the economy will come back, but there's going to be 10% of it missing. That's probably true, in which case we have to be even more on our P's and Q's to try to help people uh, find new ways to get employed and working again. So it's not going to be a simple thing. I think we're going to be dealing with this for a long time. Yeah. And, you know, of course, there's also been the public demonstrations and the protests and, you know, even seeing the, you know, the news about that and then the feedback about that. I mean, it just gets bastardized. And, you know, I've read people that are like, oh, my God, they're all just gun-toting Republicans and fringe people. And, you know, look at all the Nazi flags. And then you go and you look at the news and you look at all the photos and it's like those are American flags. Those are not Nazi flags. And only a few people have had guns. And some of these are women and children that are talking about they have signs up about their jobs or about needing work or whatever. So why are we ignoring this in order to make a political point? Um, but I also noticed that, you know, there's the flip side of that where, you know, I just got a bunch of comments that came in um, about somebody that was there and then they left. But basically, you know, we they were upset, obviously, about the fact that they were losing money and whatnot. But then they kind of went on about the Constitution and about how, you know, we, we had food and we weren't caring about people who fall through the cracks. And then, you know, they were losing their homes and we're fucking assholes. And it was like, wait a minute, this is this is not even close to where we are and where we're coming from in terms of, you know, this show and what we're trying to discuss here. So why why are we now the, the target? And, and it's like both sides of those equations. They just don't listen to one another. They're they're operating from fear and panic, and they're just attacking anybody in their path. And I don't. I just don't see how that resolves anything. But I also there, noticed. And uh, go ahead. I wanted to say something about California, but go ahead. I was going to say they're hurt, and I think there's I nothing with having an expression of what you want. I think that's truly the American way, and I think people that are hurting because their jobs have been closed have every right to demonstrate as long as they do it safely. And if we try to find a way to, to come back together to actually get people back on their feet, the reason they're demonstrating is they don't have the confidence that that's going to happen. And so that's a real problem. So I, I want to listen to everybody here. And, I yeah, there's you know, toting guns and all this other stuff, and some people saying it's Nazis and all that, but that's not the majority of people I would be willing to get. No, it's so not. I mean, it's just, it's again, it's it's people that, and, and I've, said, I've said that to several people that have written me privately, you know, friends that are talking about this issue, and I'm like, look, you know, what are you trying to accomplish? I mean, if you, you can, and you can be, um, you can be part of the solution or you can be part of the problem. And if you're out there posting threads that are bringing in all of this fringe or panic, you know, and, and you're not really focusing on how to make things better, then why? Why are you doing that? I, w I would rather not be a part of that. So, 
you know, the conversation that we decided to have when we were asked to come out and do the show was to offer our perspective. Maybe some people align with it, maybe they don't. But I think at the end of the day, the real focus is what can we do because I am not someone that's going to sit around and wait for the government to protect me or save me. I just – that's just not how I see government and, and that's, not, that's not the confidence that I have in government. I mean, even though I'm in, you know, the public policy arena, that's just not how I see government. So, um, and yeah. speaking of, you know, you've got our own, you know, federal versus state, and then, you know, the state government's being punished because they dare to speak out against the federal. And this is stuff that we don't need. And, you know, there's a rural county in California that basically came out and said that they were going to defy um, Governor Newsom's his statewide shutdown orders, and they said they were going to allow non-essential businesses to reopen, and they're going to allow diners to eat in their restaurants. And the county's deputy director of emergency services said that they had no COVID-19 cases out of the 9,000 people or whatever it was there. So, um, you know, I wonder about their testing and methodology for that assertion. But the point is their schools are also weighing the option to reopen if they can accommodate preventative measures. And so it's kind of like they're going to be – you know the, the the next example that we get to watch regarding uh you know whether or not it's going to be an irresponsible decision on their part people are going to get infected they're going to die and then because they didn't exercise uh enough caution now they're coming back to some already stressed out coffers and they're going to be looking for relief and so um i unfortunately i think that sometimes this is social darwinism in play but it's not just that they endanger themselves they also endanger others and and so i'm just wondering about where where the end is in all of this type of you know it's like you know children defying daddy and we have to pay the price for it well i think there's going to be a shakeout and we'll see what happens i mean they may do what they do and maybe there's not a huge impact they may do what they do and all of a sudden it becomes a new uh hot spot cluster and hopefully if they become a hotspot cluster, nobody hops in a car and drives over to the next town where they're not doing it to get them sick. So, or visits the nursing home and gets everybody in there sick and dead. You know, so, you know I'm, I'm hoping that we have enough fire breaks in society that we can tolerate some places where they don't obey the rules. And, you know, unfortunately, they're going to become part of the science experiment to see what the hell happens. Again, yeah. I think it goes that part in the very beginning where we said we need a lot more testing. And the reality yeah. is people have gotten tired of waiting for the government to produce tests. And I think yeah. that's the part. We can't do it ourselves. That's not something you can, you know, stitch up on your sewing machine. You can't make a, a COVID test at home. You know, it requires a significant lab and significant resources. Let's get those things done because that's not something that, you know, any company or any individual can, can create. We need to get those done because that's that's the key to opening up the country. So I'm going to shift gears here, and, uh, you know, we were kind of leading in that direction, so I'm just going to go there, and the elections. So I'll get back to you and ask you about some thoughts regarding your predictions. But um, the first thing that pops up for me is Biden and his sexual assault allegations. So he's got this staff assistant, Tara Reid, who accused him of sexually assaulting her about 30 years ago. And well, actually, she said she was a victim of sexual assault, and she didn't name him. And then she said the police complaint she filed was for safety reasons, since the statute of limitations for her claim had expired. But you know, this is a really touchy situation, especially in light of the whole Me Too movement. 
Um, and the fact that, you know, so, so many women or girls aren't believed when they report something, uh, depending upon the severity of it. I mean, it's, you know, you, you inappropriately touched me. Oh, well, it's just, you know, you imagined it or it was unintentional or whatever. Uh, they minimize it or, you know, maybe it's victim blame, blaming or whatever. And on the other hand, um, people have been falsely accused or used as political tools, which people are arguing that that's what this is. Um, but what Tara was saying is, for people that may not be following this latest thing, is she was working as a staff assistant from like 92 to 93 when she was a de- when um, Biden was a Delaware senator, and then according to her, uh, he forced her up against a wall in the halls of Congress, which is interesting because I've been in the halls of Congress, Congress and put his hands under her shirt and skirt and penetrated her with a finger, which. Holy moly. Um, And then he asked her if she wanted to go somewhere else. And when she pulled away from him, he said something like, come on, I heard you liked me or something like that. So um, she said his records contain the evidence that she complained to her superiors about him. Uh, Those records are at the University of Delaware, which they won't release uh, any papers on that until two years after Biden leaves public office. She is one of more than a half a dozen women. I think, who have said over the last year that he's guilty of inappropriate touching or hugging or kissing, um, but none of those described his actions as sexual assault at the time. And then you have some women who are Democrats, um, Stacey Abrams, I think Hillary Clinton or some, that implied that her comments weren't true and that they believe Joe Biden. Uh, And then, of course, a couple other things. Some news outlets went after her, which, of course, they do. Uh, and some Democrats cited her pro-Bernie Sanders tweets in late March as proof that this was like politically motivated. Uh, she also has some comments where she was praising Vladimir Putin, and and she was accused of being very trauma-informed, like she had some kind of agenda. And then uh, they brought out facts that she put herself through law school as a single mother and had hundreds of thousands of dollars in student and medical debt, as if this might be a motive. Um, so Biden, I mean, of course, he denies it. Uh, Reed says, and she said that Reed has a right to, to come forward, but he also says that, you know, we should look into those facts. And, he, you know, his counter to the request that they release those files is that there are like 1,800 boxes of documents that don't contain any personnel files and that this is only just a, um, you know, a, 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 a strategy or a right. tactic to use this as political fodder for his presidential campaign. And... um so Republicans and others have seized on this posture, and they've called him a hypocrite because when Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh was accused of sexually assaulting uh, Christine Ford, Biden was one who kind of stood front and center, and he supported her claims, and he insisted that she be heard, and he said that the presumption should be that you know the essence of what Ford was saying or is talking about is real, and, and whether or not she forgets the facts or whether or not it's been made worse or better over time. So, I mean, I guess my response is hypocrisy in politics or people who lobby for a double standard when they're on the guillotine. There's no surprise there. Um, I, won't, I won't pretend to know what happened between Biden and Reid, and I've encountered Biden on several occasions over the years, and he's definitely affectionate, and he wasn't a problem, but he's also well-liked and is respected by both sides of the aisle. So it's kind of interesting to see uh, this and how it's going to impact his campaign in the elections. And, and that blows us back up to the original topic, where people are waiting for something constructive and proactive and timely to happen, you know, with respect to not only dealing with the coronavirus, but, you know, funding and testing and and relief and so forth. And yet we're in the middle of this firefight where 
it's highly probable if the Republicans are successful that, you know, Donald Trump may win again. So, my God, um, what are your thoughts about the 2020 election in light of some of this stuff? Well, first, let me speak to uh, Biden. And the the bedrock principle of our legal justice system is is innocent until proven guilty. If we ever change that standard to, well, maybe you're guilty and we'll start prosecuting you without having any evidence, well, then we're sunk, right? Um, You have to have evidence. You can make an accusation. You can be heard about it. But if there's not enough evidence to carry this thing forward, I don't even know where why we should really continue with it. I mean, if she had done something and they'd acted on it more contemporaneously, that would have been a different thing. Um, if there's evidence in those 1,800 boxes, then go open those 1,800 boxes and figure out what the hell happened. Um, but if it's not conclusive, then we can't all of a sudden make the standard all that somebody has to do is accuse somebody, and then all of a sudden we can derail it, or we're right back to McCarthyism. So that's one thing I want. Um, I want people who are assaulted to be able to come forward, to be, to be, um, to have you know people believe them, and we have to have evidence. We have to be able to inspect or look at things, um, and you know, waiting 20, 30 years to talk about it. Now, I, I guess in her case, she didn't. She did complain about it at the time, and I think that's very important. Again, I think that they should look at that evidence. As far as the election, uh, God, I hope we don't have. Um, four more years of Trump, because while he's done a few things that have been beneficial, there's been a lot of things he's done that are not. And as a result, I think it's, 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 it's helped us in some ways and damaged us in many other ways. And I think the damage has been greater than the benefit. So um, on that basis alone, uh, I'm not happy with Biden as a candidate, but boy, you know, if it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't choice, I mean, I just, I really don't know. I'm going to see who's there at, at election day and make my vote based upon that. But right now I'm not really happy with my choices once again. Um, And I'd really love to see somebody who uh, is not quite so insane running the country, and I also don't want somebody (laughs) who's going to hit the wheel. So, you know, is that a lot to ask? (laughs) You know, a highly competent individual that, you know, isn't so elderly as to be a problem or isn't so insane as to be a problem, uh, really, I want. I don't really like either of those choices, so I might be voting a third choice, even if that vote means uh, it doesn't count the way I would like. Really? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm going to look at who's the best choice out there uh, when we start getting closer to Election Day, and uh, and see what we could what we can do. But um, I, I think I think the uh, what Trump has done to the Republican Party is not a Republican Party ideal. And uh, he, 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 can't, he can't go forward. I don't like Biden either, but that doesn't leave me a lot of choices, does it? So. Well, I mean, first of all, you know, Trump, if you've been following his career at all, he's not really a Republican anyway. But, but that's neither here nor there. He's an opportunist. But I also think that um, when you say things like, if if I don't have a choice, then I'm just going to vote for you know, somebody else, even if that vote does blah, blah, blah. And and I think there's some validity to that um, in a perfect system. But I think in an imperfect system that is relentlessly a two-party system, then the net effect of that is that you're going to end up getting someone like Trump in office again. And I was just looking at some stats the other day. I think it was actually today or yesterday in one of my – whatever. But the bottom line is that his ratings are high. 
and an all-time his approval ratings are at an all-time high now. Um, and so there are people that are just not going to, you know, they're just not going to see anything uh, deleterious about him. And, and that's I predicted that he was going to win the first election. People didn't believe me, but you know, I, I think it's up to the the Democrats to come up with something or someone uh, better. And I think it's also incumbent upon them to come up with something better than an ad hominem response to everything that is uh, either pro-Trump or or that leans right. I mean, that just has hurt them. It continues to hurt them, and yet they continue to do it. So I think that people like me who have kind of come in as an independent, because I don't want to be beholden to any type of uh, confirmation bias or, or partisanship. I mean, I think that people like us, we, we have to get stronger at coming up with third-party candidates who can win. Uh, otherwise, this is just going to be ridiculous. And so that's just the way it is. Well, we um, don't know who's going to pick as a VP. That, I think, would have a huge impact on my decision, because if it's somebody I really respect as the vice presidential candidate, that makes that choice a lot stronger. If, on the other hand, he picks somebody very weak, that would be huge. So I, I, I just really hope at this point in time that the Democratic Party uh, prevails upon Biden to really pick a really great running mate. Uh, and that would make all the difference in the world. Yeah, if, if in fact, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen with this uh, sexual assault thing. And you said something earlier, which it, we don't have enough time to go into it, but you kind of said something like, you know, if this happened 30 years ago, why wasn't it brought up then? I mean, there's a you weren't being accusatory, but you were kind of making the point that, you know, sometimes when something is introduced becomes part of a strategy as well. You know, you something has happened. But, of course, we don't know. Um, a lot of people have said that they remembered hearing this complaint from her. Um, there are documents which, you know, whether they like going through those boxes or not, if there's personnel files, then go through them. Um, the easiest way to deal with something that you allege is not true is to provide the data and to provide the facts um, of your case and let people decide. Um, and it's always going to be the court of public opinion, and, and you are almost assuredly never going to win completely in that if you are uh, on the wrong side of, of social ethics. So it's just one of those situations where he either is going to have to um, put up or this is going to continue to, to dog him until we get to November, and then we'll see what happens. But I don't know if a, a vice presidential candidate is going to save him at this point. Oh, well. We we can't have our saving uh, grace be just one thing. We have to rely upon many things, clearly. Yeah, and I think as we wrap up, I'm just tired of the game being played the same way over and over again. It's kind of like, you know, we've got to evolve. We've been around for, you know, you know, several hundred years at this point, or you know, and it's like we, we're still doing things. You know, the definition of insanity is doing things, you know, doing the same thing and expecting different results. And it's like, when do we change the game? I mean, there are other countries out there that have successfully elected third-party candidates in high office, and why are we still struggling with that? You know, why are we as a nation still driving the dialogue that says that it's going to be either A or B, and we're too afraid um, to vote for C because we're afraid that A might get in the office. When are we going to actually kind of buck up and, and put somebody forward and, and change the system and, and take this, you know, republic, quote unquote, out for a real test run? So I don't know. We have enough time to cover all that. So thank you. Yeah. So uh, I think, you know, I'm getting pinged here by like five or six different people that are trying to call in and make comments. But obviously, um, we're out of time. So here we go. 
Whoa, yeah, we really are out of time. So uh, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Uh, listen to this podcast on our website, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, uh, Player FM. We will upload the show to our Facebook page, which is STR8 Talk Radio. Sammy, Tommy, Roger, the number eight, Talk Radio. This is Donya Keating. I am signing off at about 3.58 Pacific Daylight Time on Friday, May 1st. See you next time.